Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, the longest book in the Bible. We're only going to look at the first two today. And if you didn't bring your Bible, grab a pew Bible. And uh, it's going to be about halfway through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now, before we get there, I uh, want to make you aware of several things. First of all, we've been doing this for a couple months now, but take note of what is happening at FCC. We publish this every week. It's available at the Welcome Center. You can get it via email. I get it every Friday or Saturday via email. Keep you aware of what's happening in the life of our church and events that are happening in the community that you need to be aware of. And here are a couple things you need to be aware of. This Friday night, the Vault is doing a fundraiser on the square. It's going to be awesome. There's a paragraph about that in there. Check it out. Dixie Montgomery has been our church organist for 60 years. She is getting ready to celebrate her 60th wedding anniversary and she's turning 80 and her family is throwing a party for her Saturday at Texas Christian Church from 2 to 4. You're welcome to come on out, throw her some love. Dixie is one of the crown jewels um, in the legacy of our church. So thankful for her. Show her a lot of love. Clinton Cares is this Saturday. We're continuing to address the opioid crisis that uh, unfortunately has been a reality, not just for DeWitt County, but really for the entire Midwest. There's a big event this Saturday. Take advantage of that. Father-Son Cookout, a week from Saturday on July 29. Um, it's free, but you need a ticket, and you can get tickets in the foyer. And then, I don't think this made it to the screen, but it's in the take note. Two weeks from tonight, Sunday night, July 30, Coffee at the Crossing. The folks that brought us the awesome ice cream last week are going to be hosting Coffee at the Crossing game night, 6.30 p.m. Come on out, get your coffee, your latte, your tea, your ice cream bar, play some bingo. It's going to be a blast Sunday night, July 30. Okay, so back in April, um, I did something different than I have ever done before as it pertains to conference or convention. Uh, our leadership has blessed the ministry staff since I've been here with the opportunity to get away for a couple days, sometimes up to a week, and go to a convention, go to a conference, be able to refresh. Uh, I've been a part of the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. I've done the Moody Pastors Conference. I've done the North American Christian Convention. And a lot of times those are gatherings of several hundred or even in some instances several thousand people. And they're a blessing and I love them. But this year I did something brand new. I participated in a retreat in Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains. There were 28 of us that were a part of this retreat, a spiritual formation retreat. It was led by a professor from Johnson University by the name of Dr. Jody Owens. And to say I was blessed and to say that it was transformational in my life would be an understatement. But one of the things that I was really convicted of was not just to leave it in Tennessee or just leave it in my heart, but to be able to share with you a series of messages about what I learned that I really felt like was from God. And I'm hoping that you will feel the same thing. And so today is kind of an appetizer message. I'm kind of setting the stage for the next three sermons that we're going to look at in the weeks that follow. But it's all under this idea of um, how do we live our life? What's our life look like? In America today, many American Christians are really being driven to live what I'm calling the good life. They want the good life. There are some preachers today that are putting into print words that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're defining 
what that good life is like. They're taking the words of Jesus, say, from John 10.10 when he said, I've come to bring you life and life to the full. And they're saying that that full life, that abundant life, means a big old house and awesome automobiles and a large bank account and you never get sick. And um, I don't think that that's what Scripture's talking about. I don't think that that's what we should be driven toward, although some of us are very blessed in this world. But for a moment, and if you like the people you're sitting next to, you can talk to them about this. How might you define the good life? Take some time right now. I know it's uncomfortable to talk in church. I'm giving you permission. How might you define the good life? Ready, get set, go. It's okay. You can talk. Okay, how many of you, when you were talking about the good life, something along the lines of a really good job, a really nice salary, a really nice 401k, that came into the conversation? Anybody? I mean, a lot of people, nobody had that as a good life? I mean, that is part of what the world would say is a good life. How many of you would say blessings when it comes to health? No C word. Yeah, I mean, that's what we kind of think of when it comes to the good life. How many of you maybe thought along the lines of unity and harmony within the family unit? Everybody's getting along, and there's no crisis, and brother and sister and mother and father and daughter and son, we're getting together and we're singing kumbaya together at night. There's a million different ways you could define the good life. But here's what I want to try to bring you to this morning. Just because living in America 2017 might push you to a certain definition of the good life, even if you're a Christ follower, the Bible gives us, I would say, a better way to look at success in life, a better verbiage to grab a hold of, and it's the concept of the blessed life. The concept of the blessed life. And when you go to the book of Psalms, and specifically the first two Psalms, you see this idea of blessed being articulated, being defined, snapshots, pictures are being given. Uh, the term blessed is used 25 different times throughout the book of Psalms. And Psalm 1 begins with the idea of what a blessed life looks like. Psalm 2 ends with the idea of what a blessed life looks like. And it's in that context today that I want us to consider what really is the blessed life. So Psalm 1, very first psalm in, in uh, the, the compilation of 150 of them, it is a Torah psalm. Whoa, I don't know what that was. Did I do that? Was that me? Okay. Um, Torah psalm, introducing the theme of the blessed life. And so let's read together Psalm 1, six verses. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the, in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked." They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1, a Torah psalm introducing the blessed life. And did you see the contrast in there? Really two different ways you can live your life according to the psalmist, probably David. Two different paths that you can choose. One is connected to the law of the Lord. One is connected to the way of the Lord. One is all about the wisdom of this world, the way of this world. Let's move on. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm introducing the theme of living out the blessed life. What's it look like when a leader chooses to live out the blessed life? What's it look like when a church chooses to live out the blessed life? What's it look like when your family makes the decision, we are going to live the blessed life? Psalm 2, let's read it. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will, pro I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The blessed life. Again, two different paths that one can choose. Seemingly the way of the Lord or the way of the world. If you want to get an image or images of what the blessed life might look like, look at Psalm 1, verse 3 real quickly. Let me read it for you again. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose, leaves, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The blessed life, first of all, the first picture is that it's characterized by life, living life to the full. Isn't it beautiful when the deadness of winter gives way to springtime and what was once dead comes alive. I, I love that. And yet sometimes we'll be walking in the beauty of God's creation and we'll see beautiful tree, beautiful tree, beautiful tree, dead tree. What do you say? You say, well, that's not very pretty. That, that, that's not alive anymore. That's no longer any good to, to be cut down and to, to thrown into the fire. Living life to the full. Secondly, the blessed are characterized by endurance. They're planted. They're not going anywhere. They are enduring. If there's one frustration that many in the Christian life have, it's that there has not been the instantaneous blessing that maybe they thought was going to have. I'm going to get baptized and my life's going to go from disaster to mountaintop experience like that. 
And if you can learn anything from Scripture, it's that the Christian life, it's not a sprint. What is it? It's a marathon. And so you dig in. And there'll be highs and there'll be lows. But this blessed life is characterized by endurance. You're planted. You're here to stay. And the blessed life is characterized by significance. Not just that it's a tree, but it's a tree that's bearing fruit. That's why Jesus, multiple times in the Gospels, but specifically in the, in the Gospel of John, talked about how important it is that you bear fruit. In John 15, toward the end of his life, intimate, intimate teaching time, he says that I am the vine, and he looked at his disciples, and what did he say? You are the branches. You are called to bear fruit. And if Jesus were here today, Jesus is here today, but if Jesus were speaking to you verbally today, he would say, I am the vine, you are the branches, so get out there and bear fruit. And so I have an overall question for us to consider this morning. I don't want you to answer it in a flippant kind of way. How badly do you desire to live the blessed life? Do you desire the blessed life? Is it something that, that is a hunger? Is it something that is a desire? How badly do you live the blessed life? If I were to summarize the overall point of the book of Psalms, the overall ethos of the book of Psalms, here's what it would be. Simply this, to choose wisely. And it's being written, much of it, by someone, David, a man after God's own heart, who many, many times chose wisely. And so at this point, um, we have to answer that question. Do we want the blessed life? Are we willing to choose the blessed life? But understand, it's not as simple as you might think. I want to look at the life of David, and there's some things that are on your outline that didn't make it to the slides, and that's my fault. Shouldn't try to do your PowerPoint late at night on a Thursday at McDonald's in Muhammad when the, the girl waiting on you thinks you're 65 years old. It was a, it was a bad night all the way around. Um, check out Facebook if you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, here's the point of the life of David. David faced threats all around him. And many of the threats were external. This is before he was king and after he was king. But many of the threats that he faced were internal threats. In fact, if you read, if you have a lot of time on your hands and say you read the first 75 Psalms, half of the book of Psalms, you would find that about the first 60%, Psalms 3 through 41, are all about the external threats that David's facing. And by external threats, I mean a foreign people. Sometimes it's his own people. It's Saul that's trying to oppress him. It's when David cries out in Psalm 22, that passage that many of us have memorized because Jesus quoted it from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David faced a whole bunch of external threats, but David also faced internal threats, threats from within. Psalm 51 is probably the classic example of David crying out about the internal threats that he is facing. And when you look at David and you look at his life and you look at the challenges that he faced, the man after God's own heart, the man who was chosen because he was different than all of his brothers who were older than him, but it was a heart thing. David, who rose up when no one else would rise up and said, I'll take on the giant. I know it doesn't make sense, 
I know it's not logical, but God will be with me. David's greatest challenges were challenges not external, but challenges internal. And it had everything to do with what I'm going to call the duplicity of his heart. Think about the very first words of David in Scripture. Do you know what those are? Don't put them up on the screen yet. Hold on for just a second. Um, Think real quickly. Can you think of the very first words of David in Scripture? It really shows the duplicity of his heart. In chapter 16, he is anointed to be the next king of Israel, but he doesn't speak. And after he is anointed, he goes into the service of Saul, but he still doesn't speak. And then chapter 17 begins, and we see this threat to God's people. It's in the form of a giant from the Philistines by the name of Goliath, and David still doesn't speak. And then David, the shepherd boy, is told by dad, go take lunch to your brothers who are ready to fight. And he sees the giant, and he sees the evil. And here are the very first words David speaks in Scripture. Next slide, please. What are they? What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and remove this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, from the very beginning, from the very start, David's struggling with this duplicity. And if you know the story of David, what brought him down? Was it the great kings of other nations? Was it warriors from within? His own army that rose up against him? No, he did okay with all of them. David was brought down by his heart. And the same thing can happen to me, and the same thing can happen to you as well. See, I think some of the the saddest words in Scripture are found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You read all about David in 1 Samuel, and it is awesome. He's the man after God's own heart. God's using him in a great and mighty way. And then you get to 2 Samuel, and it gets even better. He's dancing before the Lord in his underwear. How cool is that? He's got an unconditional covenant promise poured down upon him from the Lord himself in chapter 7. How cool is that? He's even showing justice and mercy to one of the sons of King Saul. How cool is that? And then it happens just like that. Chapter 11, verse 1, in the springtime. When the kings went off to war, warrior King David stayed in Jerusalem. And the next thing you know, the warrior king has time on his hands that he's never had before. And he goes for a late night walk. And he sees beautiful Bathsheba bathing. And the man after God's own heart becomes an adulterer and a deceiver and a murderer. Just warning right here, that's pretty bad stuff. Adultery, deception, and murder, that's about as bad as it gets. And that's how quickly that internal threat grabbed a hold of David and became full-born sin that could have led to spiritual death. 
And so when we consider the life of David, here's a takeaway to grab a hold of today. Our desire to serve God is always conflicted with our desire to serve self. Let me say that again. It's that important. Our desire to serve God is always conflicted with our desire to serve self. And that's real dangerous in 2017 American Christianity. Because we allow our selfish desires, we allow our selfish interests to, to seep inside. And if we're not careful to grab a hold of our heart, like it grabbed a hold of David's heart, and before long we're not living the blessed life. We're living the divided life. We're living the distracted life. We find ourselves, like David, struggling to be all in for the Lord. And so this morning, as I wrap up, I said this was kind of an appetizer sermon. I want to give you some principles to grab a hold of over this next month as we consider what's the blessed life look like? What's the spiritually formed life look like? How can I look more like Jesus? How can my family's life look more like Jesus? Four principles to grab a hold of. And number one is this. Psalm 1 teaches us the wisdom in choosing God's instruction over self-instruction or worldly wisdom. Psalm 1 teaches us the wisdom in choosing God's instruction over self-instruction or worldly wisdom. Psalm 1-2 says, His delight, the blessed person, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what he's doing. He's not meditating on Fox News day or night. He's not meditating on MSNBC day or night. He's not meditating on his favorite sports team day or night. He's not even meditating on the future of his family day and night. He's meditating on the law of the Lord all the time. He's not just reading the word. He's not just soaking it in. It's all about the direction for his life and the life of his family. We live in an interesting time. We live in a time when godly men and women who have contributed more to the kingdom than most of us will ever be able to are struggling, in, in my humble opinion, with this principle. One of my favorite Christian authors, Eugene Peterson, had a tough week. He had a tough week. Anybody follow Eugene Peterson this week? Wrote the message. Love Eugene Peterson. He was being interviewed, and, and I need to say he's 84 years old, and I don't know what I'm going to be like when I'm 84. I don't know that I'm going to see 84, quite honestly. I don't know that that's the case. But he was being interviewed, and the topic of same-sex marriage came up. And he was asked, and, and he shared that he'd worked alongside homosexual and lesbian pastors, and um, too many people make too big of a deal of it. And he was point blank asked, in the day and age of same-sex marriage, would you officiate a same-sex wedding? And without hesitation, according to the article at least, he gave a one-word answer, and he said yes. And, man, people just came out of the woodwork after him. I mean, the Southern Baptists were especially fired up on Wednesday night. Let me just tell you, if you follow any of them, Albert Moeller, Russell Moore, they were fired up. And then on Thursday, he came back, and he said, I need to clarify. That's not what I believe. I believe that God's Word is God's Word. 
and I believe that it's truth. And, and so, what does he believe? I don't know. I'm not sure. But Psalm 1 says, here's a safe bet for you. Choose God's law. Choose the word of God over whatever culture says, whatever worldly wisdom says, and you will live the blessed life. Let's move on. Number two, Psalm 2 teaches us the wisdom of choosing God's rule over self-interest or worldly pride. Look at verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. What? This is a royal psalm. This is a psalm about a king. And I'm supposed to have fear and trembling as I consider the context of my life? Can you see our president or our former president or any former president of our country? Say, my plan for my administration is to move forward with fear and trembling. They wouldn't win a state if, if they articulated that. Our governor, our mayor, whoever. No one wants to be known by I operate with fear and trembling. But that's the great paradigm. That's the point. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 teaches us the wisdom, the wisdom in choosing God's rule, God's way over self-interest or worldly pride. Number three, embrace the John the Baptist principle. I'm going to call it the decrease. In, in John 3, I know that most of you know this account. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, remember that? And he says, you know, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, you know, I'm old. How can I be born again? And then we got that great verse in verse 16. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then most of us stop reading right there. We're done with John chapter 3. There's a whole rest of chapter 3 that's really awesome. And it's an encounter with John the Baptist and, and some Jews that are trying to figure out what's going on. And they come to John the Baptist and they're like, look, this Jesus guy's doing some baptisms and you're doing some baptisms. And are we following you? Or are we following the law? Or are we following Jesus? And John gives a principle that's brilliant. It's brilliant in the first century world, and it's brilliant for you today. And here's the principle, verse 30 of John chapter 3, He, Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. Jesus must become greater, I must become less. And that whole duplicity of the heart that David struggled with, that whole duplicity of the heart that if we're really being honest, we struggle with, is lessened when we live out. Verse 30, Jesus, you become greater. Greg's becoming less. Jesus, you become greater. Samuel's becoming less. Jesus, you become greater. Karen becomes less. Jesus becomes greater. Put your own name in them. You become less. It's the principle of the decrease. And then number four, and finally, embrace the Apostle Paul principle. I'm calling it vulnerability. It's not a perfect word for this, but you're stuck with it anyway. The principle of vulnerability. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we studied it in Reload this week. Those of you that got up and were at Bible study, which a bunch of you were, Paul pleaded with God in chapter 12. 
And he said, I've got this thorn in my flesh, and I'm sick of it, and I want you to take it away. And he didn't just do it once, and he didn't do it twice. Three times he pleaded with the Lord, take this thorn from me. We don't know if it was a person. We don't know if it was a condition. A lot of people think he might have had epilepsy, or maybe he was battling blindness, or something that was keeping him from being the preacher that he wanted to be. But he said three times, God, take it away. And God said, I am not taking it away. My grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And again, we stop reading there most of the time. You read on in verse 10. He says why that's the case. He says, that's why, Paul says, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, I'm all about weakness. Because then I have to lean on Jesus then I have to lean on the Lord. And so can I challenge you to put into place in your life, in the life of your family, the principle of vulnerability, the principle of weakness, the principle of I need you, Lord, the principle of I can't do it all by myself. Some of David's greatest cries of his heart happened after the Bathsheba thing. After the adultery and the deception and the murder, and I don't think it's an accident, I think it took the man after God's own heart to reach the bottom to realize when I am weak, then I am strong. And so here's my bottom line as we wrap up today, but we're really not wrapping up. We're really flowing into next week. Growing close to Jesus and living the blessed life is my goal for my life, and it's my goal for your life. If you've been a Christ follower for four decades, or if you've been a Christ follower for four days, or you're not even a Christ follower yet, that's my goal for you, to live the blessed life, to grow close to Jesus. But understand, it will always cost something. There's always a price to pay, and we must be willing to pay the price. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for um, how you pour down blessings upon us and, and call us to, to live the blessed life. And God, we live in a day of distractions. We live in a day of struggles. We live in a day of mixed messages in many ways. And help us as we've learned today from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 to embrace your way, to embrace the blessed way, to embrace your truth, even when it hurts, even when it's painful, even when we pay a price. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is commitment time as it